Good morning to you. My friends, morally, we're living in a strange age. I think most of us feel that. Uh, morally, we're living in an age of great confusion. What was once clear and, and fixed is sort of fluid and up for grabs now. Uh, economically, what once seemed solid is uh, suddenly not so solid. And places that can hardly remember inflation, like some kind of a vestige of the Carter administration, we're seeing that inflation start to feel in our budgets and erode some of the savings that we have set aside. Uh, politically, we've seen that proven solutions are sort of being pushed aside, jettisoned in exchange for sort of grand experiments. And the larger the experiment, the more volatile the outcome and the more, the more fragile the familiar status quo tends to become. Geopolitically, parts of the world that uh, were mostly peaceful are now at war, and the implications of those actions have caused grain and fuel markets to shudder and sputter, and all the wider watching world is affected in some way. Interpersonally, if stressed me is not the best me, <laughs> and if hurt people hurt people, then is it any wonder that we're seeing strangers morph into shouters over rather minor matters? And sometimes even into fisticuffs over spots at the local Megamart parking lot. And the wreckage of this brokenness, it is uh, dividing neighbors and co-workers, it is separating friends and, and, and families. Even in our churches, often people can't seem to always get along. Does it not appear that more and more we live among broken people in a wider broken culture? Would you say that feels kind of true for you? Now, these relentless uh, disruptions have led many to a sense of despondency and even depression. Our context of brokenness has led many to a feeling of sort of perpetual anxiety or what you all told me, ajita. That was a word I didn't know until I moved to New Jersey. <laughs> what if there was a passage of the Bible that offers battle-tested, pragmatically proven, God-given solutions to these painful situations? My friends, take heart, because today we are in Philippians 4, and we have the answer from heaven to the leaven that has insidiously and perniciously and devastatingly sort of worked its way through our whole batch of dough. Today's passage teaches that broken people in broken contexts can find hope, help, and healing in Christ. Philippians 4, finding hope help, and healing in Christ. And so as you turn with me in the word of the Lord to Philippians chapter 4, let's first turn to the Lord of that word and ask him to bless our time in his text today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we believe you. 
when you say that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We believe that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so we ask today, through the Word of God that you would take us as the people of God, that you would use your Holy Spirit to make us a holy people, that you would encourage us, and if need be, rebuke us, that you would correct us, and indeed train us, that you would cut out that which would debilitate and hold us back, and add in that which would facilitate our being together, to be unified, to be uh, a force for good in this world because we are more concerned about glorifying Christ and the good of the other than we are of our own advantage. We pray, Lord Jesus, for those that maybe are sinking in despair and despondency and anxiety, that this particular passage would speak with a powerful message that they would never forget that they would be able to return to the limitless well of truth that is the Word of God, and that this particular passage would be an anchor for their soul when the seas are rough. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Word of God says in Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 2, I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche, to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. My friends, this is our text. And it has a lot to tell us about our situation. The first thing we want to see from our text today, point one on our outlines, you should have a, a little thing like this, and you can follow along, filling in what you see on the screen and hear from me today. The first point we see from our text is this. Brokenness between people can be healed through Christ-like Selflessness. Brokenness between people can be healed through Christ-like selflessness. We see this in verse 2. Paul writes, I plead with this particular woman, Euodia, and I plead with another woman, Syntyche, to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, you need to understand that Paul says at the end of verse 3 that these women are Christians. These women are Christians. These women whose names are written where? In the book of life. So they're believers, okay? Paul says these women are committed Christians. They're not marginal. They're committed. Verse 3, these women who have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel. And Paul is saying that these ladies had had a valuable, vital gospel ministry to many within the church at Philippi. Verse 3, he says these women are you know, right up there 
with people like Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, Paul reminds us. And so we need to understand that that Yodia and Synecdoche are sisters in Christ and they are pillars in the church at Philippi. But these two committed Christians were somehow at odds with one another. The Bible tells the truth, doesn't it? Yeah, if it was fiction, it wouldn't talk about these kind of things. But it tells us the truth. That these two committed Christians are at odds with one another. Now, we know the issue is not doctrinal, because everywhere else in the Bible, Paul will always call out doctrinal error with biblical truth. And so this isn't a doctrinal problem. That means it is an interpersonal problem between two very strong Christians who are seemingly very strong-willed, at least in this matter. Friends, the Bible repeatedly shows us that even strong Christians can experience interpersonal brokenness. It is so raw and so real that uh, some wag once wrote, and it always stuck with me, to, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know... That's a different story. And so Paul pleads with these ladies. Notice he doesn't command them, although he could have, because I think those convinced against their will remain unconvinced still, which is why he doesn't command them. He urges them. He pleads with them. He wants them to not just experience the end of hostility, but what he really wants is for them to experience real unity. If he commanded them, they would have to sort of make nice publicly while perhaps still harboring hate in their hearts privately. I mean, where do you go with this if the Apostle Paul called you out by name for your behavior in church? Well, you would clean up the Sunday school version of you publicly. But you might internally go, add that guy to my list of people I don't like either, (laughs) right? And so Paul doesn't do that. He pleads with them. He pleads with both of them. And that's super interesting. Verse 2, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche. I, I don't know if you've ever had a disagreement or been with someone who's disagreeable. I know in New Jersey that's rare. But I have noticed in most situations, there is a faction that is generally more right and a faction that's generally less right. That's generally true. And so one of these two was probably more right in this matter than the other. And and somebody started this fight and somebody received it. And, And at least one of them keeps stoking this fight because Proverbs 26, 20 says, without wood, the fire goes out. So somebody's throwing some logs to keep this thing hot. Uh, We've said this before in other books of the Bible together. Friends, we don't have to attend every fight to which we are invited. And if one side will cease and desist, it can become really hard for the other side to persist in this. And so notice that Paul pleads that these scrapping saints agree with each other how? In the Lord. In the Lord. That last clause is critical. Paul does not merely ask them to agree. 
You see, the New Testament does not call us to unanimity. It calls us to unity. Unanimity would mean they would have to agree in the situation. Paul calls them to unity. They're to agree in the Lord. Do you see the difference? Now, we... (laughs) Humans see things differently. Christians are humans. But humans who are Christians can set aside their differences for the sake of Christ and the advancement of his kingdom. Now, we don't know what this dispute is about. The Bible is pretty careful to conceal that from us. It doesn't tell us. It could have been a petty rivalry that formed between effective people who became jealous of each other and their ministry endeavors. Maybe one of them wanted to do the the tried and true kinds of ministry, and the other one said, I don't want the old school. I want to put the new wine and the new wineskins and do something a little different in the church in Philippi. I don't know what caused the fight. I do know that Satan can find a million reasons to divide us because God, according to Scripture, intentionally calls us out. That's what the church means. Ecclesia means called out ones. You've been called out of the world into the kingdom of light. And you've been called out. And guess what? The people he's called out are from every tribe and every tongue and every temperament. (laughs) They are different. They're men and women and slave and free and Jew and all that, right? All these different backgrounds, all these different personalities called into this glorious church of Jesus Christ. Then the Bible tells us that Christ intentionally distributes different gifts among those different people with different backgrounds and different passions and different personalities. And he gives those different gifts because he wants the church to have everything it needs to be effective and productive. And this can be the great strength of a church, amen? That there are knees and hands and lips and feet and everything happens and it's all done decently and in order. But this great strength of God, this God-given diversity, can cause great friction when we major on the minors instead of keeping the main thing, the main thing. And that's Jesus Christ, right? When we don't put Christ first and, and the greater good second, we can start to chafe when other brothers don't see an issue our way. And the solution is found in verse 2. It's to agree in the Lord. And the practical implementation of that agreeing is found in verse 5. Verse 5's command to every Christian is to let our gentleness be evident to all. To all. Um, First of all, if people described you with the word that they start with is your gentleness? <laughs> or, and do you reserve your gentleness just for those that you think deserve it? Verse 5 is a tough verse, isn't it? Let your gentleness be evident to all. Gentleness is the Greek word epikase, and, and it is a powerful word. It's very difficult to translate epikase into just one English word. So there's a venerable New Testament scholar named Kenneth Woost, and he translates this verse very well. He says, let your epikase, your sweet reasonableness, your forbearance, your being satisfied with less than you are due, become known to all men. 
Epicase carries the idea of a humble, non-retaliatory spirit. A Christ-like selflessness which subordinates one's own rights and one's own privileges, even one's own hurts. For the sake of Christ in the advancement of His kingdom. Epicase can extend kindness and graciousness in response to injustice. Epicase offers magnanimity and charity to the faults of others. It offers mercy to the failures of others. It extends grace to the hurts caused by others. My friends, if you think about this, in, in many ways, epicase is almost the essence of Christ's likeness, isn't it? Remember earlier in this letter, in Philippians 2, the Bible says this. Turn for a second to Philippians 2 and verse 3 and see if you can see epicase all over this passage. Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not only look out for your own interests, but also for the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held onto, something to be retained, but He made Himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a, on a cross. The most brutal imaginable of deaths available in their society. My friends, I, I hope you know this, but interpersonal brokenness cannot be healed by forever recalling each other's record of past wrongs. Or by vigilantly parsing each passing comment or intonation of another for the possible presence of perceived slight. Did they say, let me hold the door, and they really meant, let me hit you with the door? You know, like that. You get this thing in your head where it's like, would you like $100? Did you hear how he said that? <laughs> would you like $100? <laughs> That's not what he said, right? It doesn't matter. Like, we get twisted, Right? Interpersonal brokenness cannot be healed by forever recalling each other's records of past wrongs or by vigilantly parsing each passing comment or intonation for the presence of possible perceived slight. No, my friends, brokenness between people can be healed through Christ-like selflessness. It can. It can. My friends, let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, the sad spectacle of these dear sisters locking horns over minor matters brings us to our second point today. If the cancer of interpersonal brokenness is left to linger too long without the balm of Christ-like selflessness being applied, that cancer will spread throughout the body. And that's just what the Apostle Paul wanted to avoid in the church at Philippi. Point two today is this. Brokenness within the church can be healed through Christ-like shepherding. Brokenness within the church can be healed through Christ-like shepherding. 
Paul realizes that perhaps this conflict has gotten to the point where, where reconciliation is not easily possible without the gracious intervention of a respected other. So we see verse 3. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who've contended at my side. Now, loyal yoke fellow is the Greek word suzagos. Uh, Suzugas. It, it evokes the image of a yoke that harnesses two oxen together so they can plow more effectively when they do it collectively. That's the imagery there. Now, the thing about this word, Suzagas, loyal yoke fellow, is we don't know if this is somebody's proper name, like, you know, this is my daughter Mercy, that's her legal name, or if it's a nickname, right? Um, it was common in the early church at your baptism for a new Christian to be given a new name to represent their new standing in Christ. And in many parts of the world, at baptism, that still happens. And so your name might have been, you know, and, and now you're truth teller, right? And there was an idea of an aspirational movement. You, you with me? We see this in the Bible. There's a guy named Barnabas. You know Barnabas, right? Paul and Barnabas. When none of the apostles would hang out with the apostle killing Barnabas or apostle attempted murderer or Paul, it was Barnabas who was willing to bring Paul into the circle. But Barnabas wasn't his name. Do you remember his name? It's Joseph. But the church called him Barnabas. Why? Because he was a son of encouragement. Well, the church could use more Barnabases. Amen? Yeah. Now, whether this loyal yoke fellow is a proper name or just a description of his character. What we know is this saint knew how to bring people together. Suzagos was a gentle, respected leader in the church. And so Paul rightly assumed when he wrote the letter that everybody would know who he was talking about when he said, why don't you bring Suzagos into this situation? The point here is that sometimes reconciliation requires another party's intervention. And this is especially true when interpersonal brokenness is threatening rifts in the wider congregation, and so sometimes a peacemaker is needed to shepherd the situation away from open war. And so Paul calls a wise shepherd uh, to, to shepherd God's sheep out of this difficult situation. Now, there's other names here, and they have interesting uh, meanings. So there's Euodius. She means, her name means prosperous journey. And synecdoche means pleasant acquaintance. But sadly, the entire church at Philippi was not on a pleasant journey. <laughs> because they were not having pleasant acquaintances, were they? Because these two sisters, these dear saints of prominence and consequence, they were not agreeing in the Lord. And so brokenness between people can be healed through Christ-like selflessness... And brokenness within our churches can be healed through Christ-like shepherding. Now, for those of you in the academic world, there was a German philosopher named Schopenhauer. And he compared the, the human race uh, to a bunch of porcupines. Huddling together on a cold winter's night. He said, the colder it gets outside, the more we huddle together for warmth. But the closer we get to one another, the more we hurt one another with our sharp quills. We need each other, but we also needle each other. Can you relate? 
If we are not careful, in the lonely night of winter, eventually we begin to drift apart and we wander out on our own and we sort of freeze to death in our loneliness and isolation. My friends, Christ has given us a better alternative and it's to forgive each other for the pokes we give and receive. And that's going to allow us to stay warm because we stay together. That's the plan of God in a world of broken people. This is why Ephesians 4 urges us to be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. That's the only level you have to forgive each other to. That's it. Just the level Christ forgave you. That's it. That's the bar. And that's why Colossians 3 urges us as God's chosen people to clothe ourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience to bear with each other, and here it is again, to forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Then he says this, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, verse 14, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you have been called to peace. Now, I built this sermon in Zimbabwe, because a church in Zimbabwe called the Glenlorn Fellowship assigns me passages, and they were taking me the church through Philippians. This happened to be my passage. But this has been one of those passages that I've got to share. I shared it a couple weeks ago at another church in New Jersey. You know what they said? Super applicable. I shared it in Scotland. Do you know what they said? Super applicable. This was not cherry-picked. This was built elsewhere. But the Word of God seems to be super applicable. Now, so far, we've focused on brokenness between people and brokenness within churches. But what about brokenness within our wider context? Paul is writing this letter in what context? Well, this is one of Paul's Prison epistles. I don't know if you know scripture, just know that that looks like a prison. Not really sure. It was a very muted response. Get in your Bibles. Get in your Bibles. Okay, so we were better at this. Be better, all right? So uh, Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's chained to the Praetorian guard. He may never see these dear saints in Philippi again. For all he knows, this is how it's going to be. Now, what about the situation? Okay, well, the saints in Philippi knew that Paul was in prison. And so they sent a saint to, to sort of encourage him with a gift, with maybe some blankets and maybe some money for food, because prisoners had to have their own food purchased. There were all these challenges. They sent a man named Epaphroditus. Great, except what happens to Epaphroditus? On his journey, he falls ill to the point where he almost dies. So the guy sent to provide relief almost dies. You know, the guy that's going to your founding pastor, your apostle, who's in prison. Now, what's happening to the church at Philippi at this moment? Well, Philippi is being opposed so vigorously by Satan's minions that Paul has to open his letter to the church like this. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, and then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for faith in the gospel, 
without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Uh, this is a sign to them that they'll be destroyed and you'll be saved, and, and that by God. <laughs> for it has been granted on you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but to also suffer for him. My friends, Paul writes from a context of personal gro- brokenness in prison and from a context of widespread brokenness among those sent to help him and the church he's writing to. And that brings us to point three today. Brokenness in our wider context can produce despondency and depression, which can be healed through rejoicing in Christ. Brokenness in our wider context can produce despondency and depression, which can be healed through rejoicing in Christ. Listen to what Paul commands in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Friends, did you know that happiness is based on what happens? Happiness, therefore, is a rather fleeting feeling. Because what happens to us in a broken world, populated with broken people, and when sinners who are sinned against tend to respond sinfully and hurt people who hurt people, right? Is that we often find ourselves in situations where it doesn't feel nice. But the Bible commands us to rejoice. And to rejoice is a choice. To rejoice is something we decide to do, sometimes in spite of our circumstances. Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Paul is not commanding Christians to never be sad. That's not true. Ecclesiastes tells us for everything there's a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to weep. A time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. The Bible tells us our Lord Jesus wept. It's generally the Bible memory verse. If you ask a kid, I'll give you $10 to memorize a verse. They come up with that one. Jesus wept. It's your go-to quick verse. What this scripture is saying is that even in the midst of brokenness, we don't have to let the situation break us. We we may live in a context of brokenness, we may live among broken people, but it doesn't have to break us. We can choose to rejoice in the Lord. We can choose to focus on what we have in Christ instead of what we lack in the moment. The fact that Paul has to say this twice is a clear indication that it is not always easy to be joyous. Again, I will say, rejoice. Uh, There's a theologian named Karl Barth, and he used to say there's a defiant nevertheless in Christian joy. In Acts 16, Paul was sitting in a jail in Philippi. He'd been wrongly accused, he'd been publicly stripped, he'd been brutally beaten, but nevertheless, as he and his companions were in that prison, they were singing at midnight praises to Jesus. And probably as they sang each octave, a rib that was busted barked in pain. Do you see the context didn't remove the choice to rejoice? Theologian J.I. Packer used to say, joy is not an accident of temperament or unpredictable providence. It is a matter of choice. 
It's a choice the prophet Habakkuk made when he wrote, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there's no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. It's a choice that Paul lays out in 1 Thessalonians 5.16 when he writes, Be joyful always. Pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's a choice Paul lays out in Romans 12, 12, when he writes, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Now those Satan can't beat with depression and despondency, he tries to beat with anxiety. We live in an anxious age, don't we? Yeah, agita, right, as you taught me. Which brings us to point four today. Brokenness in our wider context can produce anxiety, which can be healed by turning worry into prayer. Hear this again. Brokenness in our wider context can produce anxiety, which can be healed by turning worry into prayer. The Bible says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Whatever is frightening you, whatever is keeping you up at night, you can either take it to Jesus, or you can rehearse the worst until you end up in a hearse. I, uh, I keep this verse on a very close to me. It's in a business card I keep in my wallet. Uh, I've kept it for many years. I used to have it posted around the house. I might have had it in my office here. Uh, I don't know. Some of you may have seen it. It's this little, little guy here. I don't know if they still make it. Uh, it says, worry bad. The other side, it says, prayer good. It says that in black and white. And then in red, it says, got it? Worry bad, prayer good, and then it has this verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Many times when I've been overwhelmed, Kim and I have gone to this verse, amen? There was a time when she put it like everywhere in our house in Zimbabwe when Ethan was little and I was quite overwhelmed. I'm a problem solver by nature. You remember that, maybe? That means I tend to think about problems, (laughs) which doesn't make Jack a very happy boy, right? (laughs) So we have our hands in many different ministries and many different pots, and I'm on a bunch of different boards, and and each of those ministries has unique challenges, and, and, and many of them are quite significant challenges, and the devil seems to have a way to make them at times seem like utterly unrelenting, unresolvable challenges. Now, I can do one of two things with this situation. I can worry about it and make myself miserable. And I've done that many times. Or I can pray about it. And I can invite the King of Kings to either help solve my problem or guard my heart. Sometimes he doesn't solve the problem. He solves me. It's very interesting. Now, I want you to notice in our passage, there are a bunch of different words for prayer in this one little verse. Because prayer is the biblical antidote to worry. We all know that worry is unproductive and self-destructive, 
But God's word assures us that prayer is highly productive and it's soul enriching. Prayer is highly productive. The Bible says the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. One guy prayed and God moved when the whole nation was doing their own thing. When a wicked ruler was on the throne, when, when literal Jezebel, who became metaphorical Jezebel in Revelation, was there, one guy prayed and God moved. Now Jesus may or may not solve the problem, but if you permit him, he can guard your heart in the situation. Satan attempts to bombard our minds with worry, and that can be replaced with peace if you go to the Prince of Peace. Or you can go to your problem and go to pieces, right? Satan attempts to strangle our hearts with anxiety. And if you turn that issue into prayer, and then you're willing to leave it there, leave it with Jesus, Jesus can, like a garrison of seasoned Roman legions, He can guard your heart and mind, and it can become unscalable. To put it biblically bluntly, it's Jesus or worry. It's Jesus or anxiety. It's Jesus or interpersonal conflict. It's Jesus or church conflict. Which brings us to the final point today. Point five is this. Hope, help, and healing are available through Jesus Christ. Hope, help, and healing are available through Jesus Christ. I want you to listen in again to the sturdy spine that makes our passage stand. Verse 2, agree with each other in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Verse 5, the Lord is near. Verse 6, present your requests to God. Verse 7, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. My friend, if you're here today and you're running out of hope, if you are here today and you need help, if you are here today and you seek healing, I want you to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Jesus is the God of hope. You might write Romans 15.13 next to this passage. Romans 15.13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the great helper. Uh, Hebrews 13.6 says, So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Friends, Jesus is the great healer. In the Old Testament, one of the names God chose to use for Himself is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And in the New Testament, Jesus is known as the great physician. If you are here today and you need hope, you need help, you need healing, you need to look to Jesus, my friend. Jesus' righteousness is sufficient to deal with our personal brokenness 
Emulating Jesus' selflessness is sufficient to deal with our interpersonal brokenness. Jesus' shepherds can heal a church's brokenness. Rejoicing in Christ can heal our despondency and lift our depression if we give it to Jesus. Prayers, petitions, requests given with thanksgiving, they can begin to heal our anxieties just like a seasoned garrison of Roman legions. That's what that word means, guard our hearts. The only question today is this. Will you let Jesus be the hope and the help and the healing that you need? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning because you are the author and perfecter of our faith. You lived sinlessly and died vicariously and rose victoriously that we could have hope and help and healing in You. And so, Lord, I pray right now that if there are some that are sinking in the sand of despondency and despair and depression, that they would turn to You in these things. That they would make the choice to rejoice in what they have in Christ, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God, the blessings of God, the promises of God, that they would start to see that it's amazing what praising can do. And that would start to make the the despair leave their lair and stay over there. We pray, Lord, for those who come today who are anxious, that there is something that's weighing them down. They have that agita. We pray that instead of fixating on the problem, they would start to praying to You as the solution. We believe that in time you can lift that, you can mend that, you can move mountains for us. But even if there is a weight, even if we have to be patient in affliction for a season, we pray that you would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That instead of continually running through the worst case scenario, we would start running to the Savior. And that you would do with just what you promised in this verse. That you would break that cycle of anxiety. We pray, Lord Jesus, if there's interpersonal brokenness, that you would help us to have a Christ-like selflessness. That we would forgive others as they've forgiven us. That we would extend grace and love. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would work in our churches. Work in our nation. Work among your church that we would be salt and light that people would find us attractive because we are good ambassadors, that we would be a perfume in the room and not a stench in the trench, that when we walk into the line and everyone's like, can you believe this line? Can you believe this? Why don't they get more tellers? That there's something different about us and we would bring a little bit of Jesus into that wine of a line. If there's anyone here today who knows about Jesus but hasn't yet given their lives to Jesus. The Bible says that it's appointed unto us once to die and then to face the judgment. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We cannot earn our way to you. We can't give our way to you. We can't give up our time. We can't help little old ladies cross the street. That's not going to get us to heaven. If we can't build a ladder to reach the moon, there's no way the ladder of our good works will ever reach the heavens. And so we need for God to reach down to us. And he did that through Jesus Christ. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. 
The Bible says all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. The Bible says if you confess with your tongue and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. The Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which you may be saved. And so if today you want to be saved, you can pray with me right here, right now. Your prayer can be expressed something like this. Father, forgive me, for I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and there is no other than your one and only Son. And so I put my faith in the work of Jesus Christ, and I ask that you would do everything that you've promised in Scripture for me, that you would adopt me into your family, that now there'd be no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. That you would wash me by your blood, that I would be white as snow. That you would give me a new nature, because whether I feel it or not, by the authority of the word of God, I'm a new creature. And I pray that you would help me to be a bold ambassador and a winsome witness to my friends, to my family, and to those that before today I would have called my enemy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.